0: Blog Talk Radio. is the Perkins platform welcome this is a solutions oriented podcast and live radio show each broadcast we dedicate just about 30 minutes to explore contemporary issues and solutions in leadership and this is your host Brian Perkins uh, I can't begin to tell you how excited I am about this week uh, for the first time um, we're having a four-part series uh, connected in in a lot of ways. Um, So the first part of why I'm excited is that uh, this four-part series uh, should be really informative and um, just give all of you listening in um, something to think about. As you know, these uh, podcasts and live shows are really more conversations that you are listening in on, and uh, today will be no different. Um, And the second part of why I'm really excited is that today is a um, uh, introduction of something we hope to do going into the future. And I want to introduce all of you to uh, my daughter, Erin, who is um, going to uh, hopefully become a regular contributor to the podcast going forward uh, in what we're calling a kind of book club, our father-daughter book club. Erin uh, is currently a graduating senior uh, woo-hoo, uh, at the Ohio State University, majored in sociology, and uh, proud to uh, say she'll be attending the University of Utah Law School in September. Erin um, is interested in serving historically disadvantaged and disenfranchised communities, and so I'm excited um, uh, to do this podcast with her. Uh, so welcome to the podcast, Aaron. Erin.
1: Hello, I'm excited to be here.
0: Good, good. Um, and, you know, before any of you think that I am the one that put her up to this, uh, uh, quite honestly, she was reading um, and wanted to read more of uh, Baldwin's work, and we were talking about it, and I asked her, you know, kind of what made her interested in it, and and shortly after she we, we talked, she said, you know, we ought to um, do a a podcast, um, of us talking about it. Uh, we've had some great conversations about a lot of different things. And so, uh, I took her up on it and here she is. And so, um, hopefully some of you have read along once you found out that we were going to do this broadcast, uh, focused in, focused in on, um, the fire next time by James Baldwin. um, and you read the text, or some of you may have read it in college or otherwise for uh, easy reading um, and have decided to also join in on the conversation, Um, we will break in time. Those of you who want to call in, um, there is um, a place for you to call in, 657-31481. Again, 657-383-1481. Uh, and we'll take calls as we, uh, get a chance to break. Um, but also, uh, as a part of this, um, I'm going to talk a little bit about it later too, but there are after tonight, um, at 8 p.m. Eastern time all week, um, Monday through Thursday, we're going to do, uh, other parts in the series. Tomorrow I have, uh, Uh, a gentleman, uh, William F. Spivey, who is a um, author and um, writer and contributor to Medium.com, who will be here to discuss uh, in part, uh, kind of part two to talking about not only James Baldwin, but a number of people who have written. And we're just going to go back and uh, go back to what I'm calling a time capsule around 1960. And what um, William Spivey and I are going to talk about is Has Anything Changed? Um, that's tomorrow night, 8 p.m. Eastern. And then on Wednesday, um, a panel of black men um, who have black boys, um, and it the title of that show is why the conversation black men have with their boys is necessary and we're talking about the talk um and the talk about uh assuming their place in society and making the right choices so forth um and so i initially it was going to be a three part series and i told aaron about it i was excited and aaron challenged me uh to reconsidered the three-part series and now made it a four-part series and invited a panel of Black women who are mothers with daughters and who have also had similar discussions about being Black in America. So uh, we'll talk a little bit about those um, later. Um, I, I will let you know that I'm broadcasting live from New Orleans and we're in the middle of a uh, rainstorm and if you know New Orleans you know that um, at any time the lights can go out and so have a backup plan a we have um, battery powered internet and uh, computer system ready in case it goes out so Aaron is all prepared to um, kind of carry the the load until I can log back in if that happens but we're we're definitely prepared for it so enough of me just kind of going on and on about what's coming and what's going on. Um, I, I would, you know, I want to say this as a start, because, I Aaron, I really would like to know a little bit more about what, what kind of motivated you to, you know, explore James Baldwin a little bit. And I have to say um, a lot of people who know me know that I grew up In a small town in northern Alabama, uh, northwest corner of Alabama, and um, fairly uh, traditional high school. And we read the classics. We really didn't read any, for lack of better words, contemporary authors. Um, Of course, we read people like Robert Frost and even going back to others like um, Shakespeare and Chaucer and, and the like. But um, my whole high school experience, we did not have people like Toni Morrison or James Baldwin. And so it was not until I went to college that I even knew who these people were. And I went to college at a historically black college. And so, of course, those were part of our curriculum. But in high school, um, never, never I'd uh, heard of James Baldwin, uh, but not... Didn't know about his work, and and so um, since that time, for me, uh, I've been fascinated not only with his work, um, written work, but his advocacy and some of the the videos. If you haven't had a chance to see them, I, I strongly advise you to go on YouTube and and take a look at some of his debates and and treatise on racial politics in America during that time. Brilliant, brilliant man. So I've been, just been fascinated by his writing and and otherwise. But um, for me, it was just really after he, um, hearing about him and, and really wondering, say, I, you know, I didn't get it in high school. So what is all the fuss about James Baldwin, James Baldwin? And so it was certainly long, even after college, that I picked up books and, and tried to read some of his, his work. So um, why don't we start there before we even get into the text, Aaron? What, tell me a little bit about why you why did you um, get interested in him and 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 what made you decide to pick up Baldwin?
1: It was the random scroll through YouTube, and I landed upon James Baldwin and Nikki Giovanni's interview. Uh, it was a two-part series. It's about two hours long. But I was really fascinated by how he talked and what he had to say, and their conversation was just really amazing to me. So I wanted to read up on his work. So I did some Google searches, and um, I found a couple. Um, I also have Nobody Knows My Name and then Notes of the Native Son, which I look forward to reading. But it was initially the YouTube video with Nikki Giovanni.
0: Right, right. Um, well I you know, I ha that one I haven't seen. I've seen the I've seen it um kind of in the margin, so I haven't looked at that one. The one that I saw and I think I may have uh, recommended it to you, was uh his Debate with William Buckley um, at at Oxford, I think it was, and I, I think that's probably what just um, left me in awe of of his intellect, uh, his ability to communicate and articulate his ideas, um, so profound in his use of of kind of argument and and. Uh, I was just really impressed, um, with, with how he, how he dissected what was going on. you know, sometimes when, when it's personal, um, we get emotional and, and are not always the best communicators, but he, this was something deeply and had, and was deeply, deeply personal for him. And he did such a great job, um. So the the one that you saw with Nikki Giovanni, what was the what was the topic? What was he uh, talking about?
1: So first they start off talking about uh, black writers, and they're from two different generations. So um, they Nikki asked if like James depends on the her generation of black writers, and he's like, of course I do. And then they get into topics about the black community, which are still very relevant today, which is why I related to it so much. I think um, often you can learn a lot from other people's conversations. You can learn a lot about yourself and and the world uh, in which you live. So um, they talked about black relationships, they they discussed um, just a myriad of topics um surrounding the black community.
0: Yeah, did so you, you mentioned earlier you said something about mm-hmm. uh, that they were relevant today. Um what what was it just just one of the things that you thought was that they talked about that was relevant um to what's going on right now?
1: Um, I think the condition of the black male. um, Mm. So I'm in my early 20s and figuring out, um, navigating romantic relationships or platonic relationships, and they talk about one that really stood out to me was uh, when Nikki Giovanni said, you can pretend all day for the world, but because I love you most, I get the worst of you. Um, referring to the black man, how he's constantly um, tested in the public um, at work, and he just is constantly um, berated and then gets home and then um, expels that on his partner. And she's saying, I love you, so I get the worst of you, but why can't you pretend for me? And so that mm. really struck me. Mm. Um Like, what effort are you willing to put into your relationship? Um, When you come home, you often want to take off that mask. Um, You want to release your feelings, but that often isn't the best thing for your partner.
0: Sure. A lot of
1: negative stuff can come from that. So that was one that stood out for me. Yeah.
0: Yeah. No, fascinating. So, you know, just kind of moving to, the text that we, we agreed to talk about. And I think I'm, I'm really excited because of, you know, the, the future books also to read, the ones that you uh, just mentioned um, very early on. So for those of you who may not have read The Fire Next Time, is divided into two distinct sections. The first one is pretty well-known and, and discussed. Is um, a letter. It 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 um, it's entitled "My Dungeon Shook," uh, letter to my nephew on the 100th anniversary of the emancipation, and it's a, a fairly, um, I, I guess if you could say it's, it's not a long long letter, but it's a, it's a it's a substantial letter to his nephew, um, and then the second section is down at the cross. Letter from a region in my mind, and uh, I'm not sure if it was free flow. I don't know if it's available out there that he may have ever commented on if it was just kind of a free flow type uh, dump, but it is incredibly powerful as well. So let's start with and and I, you know, I told Aaron at the beginning of this, let's just um, go as far as we can. You know, we've allocated an hour to talk about this and I know we could probably go all day on just the first letter. So my, I have highlighted and written in the, um, in the margins. I don't know what you did, but um, I, I had quite a few things, but like, I honestly, after the, the first page starts at the very bottom of the page, and then the next page I already started highlighting, um, what I thought was interesting, the first thing that jumped for me was that he he started talking about um, who this nephew might be like in his family, and he mentioned the grandfather and said, you know, the grandfather was kind of defeated um, long before he died because he had believed what the white man had said about him. But he goes on to talk about kind of the the status very quickly in the letter, he jumps right to what might be perceived as a, a negative um, tone. And he says, I tell you this because I love you. And please don't you ever forget it. It's that the way this started with, talking about his grandfather and not knowing if he was going to be like his grandfather or not, but that to stop and, and to emphasize that almost like prepare yourself, but I want you to know that I love you and I don't ever forget it. Like on these pages, what you're about to read, what anything you might see that this is what motivates me to, to say these things. Did that strike you the way it struck me that he, he, he just kind of inserted that as he like in the middle of, of talking about what was.
1: Right. It's kind of like the trigger warning of the, of the note to his mm-hmm. nephew. It's uh mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. the introduction to where about, I'm about to relay some, Disheartening information about living as a black man, but it's necessary. Like yeah. like the police talks that black uh, families have with their children is mm-hmm. distressing and and disappointing to have to do, but I do it because I love you.
0: Right. And right. You, and
1: I and I want you to
0: to be
1: well equipped to survive in a white America.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it actually reminds go ahead, mm-hmm.
1: it actually reminds me of something you have told me. um it kind of gives me the same uh, feeling um I remember you told me before I went to college, you were like, be careful because you don't get as many opportunities as these white people do, so like if you mess up or you know, if something just happened, you won't get that benefit of the doubt. And mm-hmm. that is mm-hmm. reminiscent of that quote that you just said.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you know, for me, um, I, I think probably the reason that um resonated with me is because as a parent having to relay, and in this case, he was the uncle, and I think he probably felt that he was the one that was um, best equipped to, to share this or to articulate this for his nephew, is that in a lot of ways, it's a painful conversation to have. And I know there are those of, you know, there are people who Are listening who will probably listen to uh next week i mean um the on wednesday the conversation with the panel and on thursday but it's it is it's a painful conversation and and throughout it's it's not easy because so much of what generally you want to be able to say is If you work hard and you do everything you're supposed to do, that you'll get everything you deserve. And I think about not the case. Not the case. And I know people will say, "Well, that's what everybody." Well, yeah, I believe that that it it is the case where everyone. I think it's more pronounced uh, in this country for black people, and I'm intentionally saying black people have a very different experience um, with with that, with the meritocracy or the, the promise of meritocracy. Um, and so my father said to me, almost kind of just that thing was that um, work really hard, not going to get everything you deserve though, but work hard um, to, to accomplish um, as much as you can to fulfill your purpose in life. But, Never the promise, and you may remember I, I don't i don't i didn't promise any of you girls that you would get everything you deserved um but that it would be there would be a lot more opportunities if you did if you do work hard
1: yeah. and it's interesting because you said um the meritocracy um, but it reminds me of um the interview with Nikki Giovanni that he said that he, it's often the case that black people have to be excellent where white people can be mediocre. Mm-hmm. So it's this constant bar that we have to reach, this unattainable bar that even if you reach it, there's still systematic things that are are restricting you or or people who who can. Um, limit your opportunities, and so it's this constant strive to be excellent where other people don't have to be.
0: No, absolutely, absolutely. I want to pivot a little bit um, right after that? Um, there, there's a section that he he goes into that really also struck me, um, where he said that and he he refers to on more than one occasion and it's interesting because he he referred to fellow Americans in in um, in his debate with William Buckley he referred to them as his countrymen and he did the same thing here he talked about his countrymen and and he, he says that they are destroying hundreds of thousands of lives and do not know it and do not want to know. So I, I, I used to think that there surely there are not while I don't believe there are widespread uh, numbers of people who are plotting, um, but I, I wonder what, what, I wonder if he said that to bring attention to it. But to what, like, what extent do you think there are people who do not know that they're destroying hundreds of thousands of lives and do not want to know it? I, I used to believe that. I, I think I used to believe that there weren't people plotting to destroy. Um, but I don't believe that I don't anymore. Think
1: I don't think it's deliberate. I think it's um, when you fail to acknowledge your privilege, um, and failed to speak up, um, he even says uh, people find it very difficult to act on what they know, to act is to be committed, and to be committed is to be in danger. So you're, you're endangering, he's basically referring to endangering your identity, you're endangering your sense of security. You don't, you, you. I'm, I don't know because I, I'm not white, but I assume you kind of have an inkling of like, Oh, it's kind of off. Something is, you know, I'm kind of doing better than people of color, but I'm not going to acknowledge it because that's just too much. It's just, you know, we had Obama. It's too much. Uh, it's over with. Or it's just failing to acknowledge the privilege and um, and not doing anything, not speaking out about it, um you're by not doing that, you're contributing to the problem in my opinion.
0: So do you think it's a conscious not knowing? So what he's referring to here is that they do not know it and do not want to know that it's a conscious I, I'm I'm not accepting it almost. Is that do you think that's what he's saying?
1: I mean it has to be um from media to from cable media to social media, um, how could you ignore it? I think you'd actively have to ignore it. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think it's very in in your face in America, especially this past summer, it was like week after week, you, you had another hashtag um, or uh, a name Black lives matter um and it could be like maybe they aren't having like I just don't see a world where you don't you don't come across it at least once you
0: know mhm, mm-hmm.
1: so you have to be you have to be consciously ignoring the fact,
0: yeah, well, you know and and even jumping because i 'cause I'm gonna come back to something. Um, else, But to your point about the meritocracy, though, he, he also says, and I quote, um, you were not expected to aspire to excellence. You are expected to make peace with mediocrity.
1: And that's what we battle with. It's um, outside expectations of who we are supposed to be and then our own expectations that we set for ourselves. And then going out into the world and constantly battling that, um, going to a uh, PWI, um, predominantly white institution, I see that a lot. Um, I've seen that a lot across my four years of battling even professors' expectations of what I was capable of or students' expectations. Um, They expect you to... I don't know, I honestly do I don't know what goes to that, it's, like, it's infathomable to have a, um, somebody who knows as much, oh, and you're black, um, it's, uh, it's just um, fighting, fighting the outside, and keeping what you know yourself to be, and keeping yourself to that standard,
0: despite right. what they
1: may think of you.
0: Right. Right. And, and, but I, I guess my question is also what happens, you, you know, the, what about the battle on the inside, not meaning inside the individual, but among, among blacks about, about those expectations? Cause you, 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 you said something about also those, Expectations across kind of racial lines, but what what about the mediocrity mindset that
1: I think that black people have?
0: Yeah, but but that that, that is also like- almost that is uh, is a part of the that people have been socialized that way. Large numbers of people, right. and see to me that. That is so. The destroying hundreds of thousands of lives to me, when he talked about that, that that was in fact the. It's not just a physical destruction, but a psychological and social destruction as well. That that mindset of mediocrity um, is also a part of the destruction.
1: Mm-hmm. And so my question is: So how do
0: you how do you get it from like I mean I should say not how do you get it out? But I, I mean, what what do you think about the the fact that it exists in 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 the black dare I say community? But the among blacks and the mindset of being mediocre.
1: I think it could be hard to try to divorce yourself from, um, especially when you have systematic elements in place. When you're not seeing um, your school funded like the white schools you travel to when you go and play sports, when you're not seeing um, the development in your community, you you when things around you are mediocre. All you can think is, "Okay, I am mediocre as well. you match your environment um that's not the case for everybody, but I think that contributes to maybe not um, maybe not being able to get out of that mindset um, As for how to do it, I think that's what James Baldwin was trying to figure out in throughout his life is he moved to paris to become a writer and try to escape racial america but found that you you can't run away from something that's inside of you you know you don't run away from the problem so that's why he came back and and i think he just really i don't think he ever found the the answer i don't think we're going to find the answer anytime soon um i i don't know yeah. Get rid of that um, mentality.
0: Yeah, um, and I, I, I do think that it it will take um, quite some time um, to. I, I think a lot would have to shift um, to in order to um, to realize that. Uh, for those of you who just joined us, um, I'm speaking with my daughter Erin. Um, we are talking about uh the fire next time by James Baldwin um and um it's it is a thought provoking treatise on uh, on racial dynamics in America in 19 uh 65 i think was when he wrote this letter um maybe and i know there were some other writings in 62 but um this you know here we are some 60 years later and the question is, you know, how much of this has changed. Uh, Erin said earlier in the broadcast that there was much about it that struck her uh, in what he was saying back then relevant today uh, through interviews and certainly now through the writing. Um, So we're having this kind of text-based discussion, if you will. uh, And there's another uh, piece of the text I want to, I want to ask you about, um, what you what your thoughts are, uh, and it's right after the, the comment about being uh, hundreds of thousands of lives being destroyed. He says, "But it is not permissible that the authors of of devastation should also be innocent. It is the innocence which constitutes the crime." And so he goes on and I just say kind of the first part of the next sentence was now my dear namesake, these innocent and well-meaning people have caused you to be born under conditions, not very far removed. And he goes on. And and so I wrote in the margins, innocent question mark. And there's some other places that he describes them as innocent and not sure he meant that, but I think what he is pointing out is that these people then and now so believed in their 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 inability to be held responsible for even the privilege that they enjoyed the things that they took for granted that in their minds they, they were not responsible. And so they're innocent of that. And so, but what he describes is the the innocence is the crime. I thought that was particularly poignant. Uh,
1: why would you have to be accountable or feel responsible when you Hold all of the authority when you created your own authority. Um, of course, you're not going to see anything wrong with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you're not going to see anything wrong with it. Uh, it's. I think the innocence is just the lack of acknowledgement that we were talking about earlier. Uh, mm-hmm. It's the indifference. It's the. I think it also um, plays into the. American mindset of individualism. Um, as long as you are doing okay, your your immediate circle of family is doing okay. Um, there's no need to look outward, right? It's the facade of the American dream, and and you don't need you don't need to think of other people because it, you are indoctrinated to believe that it's a fair and just system. You know? And if you're white you're you're not really gonna see anything in your in in your feel or in your view that is obstructing you that I mean you have socio economic into play. Like if you're poor you might have more of an experience with this but um he oh I lost my train of thought. Well, the in innocent um so you're not going to you're, you 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 don't need to be accountable because nobody's nobody is holding you accountable
0: sure we're trying but, but,
1: to hold you accountable
0: right so. right and and to me that's part of what we're still struggling with is i mean because there there are countless books that are being written about privilege now and and a lot of people are consultants about diversity equity and inclusion and so forth and so uh, there are a lot that. of yeah there, there's a lot of conversations you say what you, you say you hate that
1: I hate I, I think <laughs> diversity and inclusion is just another way to separate us from being Americans we're black Americans we're not Americans um, uh, I think it's another way to reach a quota. If, you, if you're so committed, if you are so assured that you want black people, just make those opportunities happen then. You don't need a sep- – in my opinion, you don't need a separate division, a black division, mm-hmm. a black this, a black that. Um, mm-hmm. and just, just include – like it's not – you don't I think we tend to love categories and put yeah. people into little neat boxes but um I just I don't like diversity and inclusion I just it feels just like another way of racism to me
0: Sure well, well but the thing is is that and I I I absolutely agree with you and hear you when you say that you know why not just be american also recognizing kind of the historical context that's different is that i think there are two really important caveats to that one is that um because we you know these these categories and programs or what have you are 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 necessary because they have been put in place almost to you know to to try to even because they don't do that but to try to even the playing field more because otherwise we would not be able to uh, see any progress you know I think about and I've told Mm -hmm. this story uh, before to I've taught classes and uh, education law and policy and I think about um, when President Kennedy first signed what was an executive order. It was uh, actually Executive Order 10925, and it became known as affirmative action later. But but basically, what what people did was. They, they started to say things like affirmative action is reverse discrimination and did not pay attention to the context of what was happening then and what continues to happen now. I am mm-hmm. all for the spirit of what happened then because, I, I mean, people are not. I mean, to your point, diversity, inclusion, why not just call us Americans? Um, but it's because that wouldn't happen. And so President Kennedy said that, you know, it's, it's we don't want to hear another kind of expert opinion on this. We don't need another um, blue ribbon panel employed. We don't need any other study done on this. It's been 100 years at that point post-slavery, and the American black was still suffering – from discrimination And discrimination and So the lack of inclusion The lack of opportunity And so on just this small level Said so You must And that's what he's talking about You must take affirmative action You have to do this You, you have to Affirm this And place African Americans Place blacks in positions You must do this and And it was because people were not, and they still are not, if given a choice, so it it had to come down as an executive order and then eventually law to force people to do it and so that's the reason for me policies and regulations regarding affirmative action or regarding um regarding equity are necessary and so people turned it around they said well affirmative action is reverse discrimination and it's not fair it was never intended to be fair so it's like suddenly we got to talk about fairness when we're talking about these these policies that have to be put in place to right wrongs to right the fact that that people are not doing what they should do, which is view individuals on the basis of what they can do versus just the color of their skin. You're going to say something?
1: Yeah, I understand that part. You know, you do want um, diversity in the workplace, but at the same time it's as a black community, it's how, how long are we going to accept the bare minimum from from society? It's like I would – I think affirmative action has helped a lot of people, but I would prefer going into a workplace – like if affirmative action never happened, going into a workplace and seeing that they chose on their own merit to hire X amount of black people versus trying to meet a quota – or trying to um accommodate the law. Um I think that's where you have um black people in situations where they're uncomfortable at work or sure. they're the one black sure. person in HR or um I think uh, the law kind of is a veil for racism within um within the workspace, work field.
0: Yeah, no, I no, I, a, I I hear you. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, the double edged sword. It's like it's necessary. Um, black people need these opportunities, um, but we need to see what these companies are really about outside of quotas, and that's where I mean, we need to put our energy and our dollar and things like that.
0: Well, now you 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 going way deep. Um, to talk about kind of the collective and letting our dollars speak. That's a whole other conversation we can have about um, the the power of black dollars. And while we're not a monolithic community, certainly there are a lot of interests that we have that Mm -hmm. could, could benefit from, from re kind of restraining. I think about, some of uh, the things that Martin Luther King said, and others, I uh, never will forget one of his speeches, and that I think he was he. This particular one, he was in Memphis and talked about um, don't like there were certain um, companies that he explicitly named, like Coca-Cola and 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 certain uh, groups that were not supportive of the black plight even then see I think it was sealed test milk eat was another one he mentioned but um that those that there's there's power in economic um economic statements and and so I, I agree with you that that would is what would be better but unfortunately we don't we're not there. Is that people so it's one thing to say that we we would we would much rather be hired because it's the right thing to do. Unfortunately, what we've learned over time is that people have been unwilling to do the right thing. And that's why when when going back to I think the brilliance and the way Baldwin articulated this is that they're innocent of it. They don't know They don't want to know that this is what they're doing and the impact it has on a group of people. Um, They look past it. And no matter what you show in the way of facts and figures and numbers, that they're innocent of it. Um, So I I think it's, it's interesting. So there's another place that, I, I'd love to know what you think about this, that he goes on. And again, I don't, I don't think, I think we're going to have to, you have to come back so we can talk about down at the cross. Cause we've already uh, gone um, close to an hour just talking about uh, the first in the letter to his nephew. But, but I have another place that I I'd love to know what you think because here again, he brings up love. Um, but this time directed towards the the them and the them in this place or the countrymen, the whites that he's been referring to in this whole letter. But he says, you must accept them and accept them with love for these innocent people have no other hope. And so in the margins, again, I wrote here, empathy, question mark love question mark sarcasm question mark i i'm i'm like i don't know like i'm really stuck what do you think he he he's saying you must accept them with love for it, for these innocent people have no other hope i think he's i guess <laughs> hmm. what do you think you said you think he's what I don't know, I mean I'm just struggling. It's like I, I I I read him to be very sincere all throughout, but my sarcasm is not one of half witted um sarcasm, not one of being funny, but one of if you don't if you don't do if you don't show them love despite what they do for you, do to you, it's like they're, they're, they're going to be lost and, and broken forever. And so, you know, there's some that would say that this is kind of like letting, so let them beat you, let them misuse you and still love them. But I just don't know. I don't know. I was like, is he throwing empathy here? for them I really don't know
1: I don't think it's sarcasm I think it is more empathy it's like what else are you going to do but love if you meet them with the same type of hate that only taints what you have going for yourself you can't um you can't buy into what they expect you to be you know it's like um when you're confronting somebody who's upset, you don't raise your voice or their emotions. You're more calm. You know, that that calms them. So maybe that's what he's trying to get at is it's hard. Like, black people are always, we always have to be the bigger person, basically. Um, And that's emotionally taxing, but what is there but love, you know? it's I uh, I don't think it's gonna come from bloodshed or um or violence. I think it's gonna come from a deep evolution of uh radical love. I think uh I think it was Angela Davis that talked about radical love as um as a way to really Progress as a society, um, if if we have this love for each other and respect for each other, would racism really exist? You know? Yeah,
0: yeah, and and there it, to that that's a great segue to this next piece. Um, in terms of what I loved about his, so he's he's painting a picture. And then he's matching it with, and here's who you have to be. Here's how you have to, in that, like in the case he said, accept. But he, and before the, the place where he talked about accepting with love, he said, please try to remember that what they believe as well as what they do and cause you to endure does not testify to your inferiority but to their inhumanity and fear. And I remember growing up, my grandmother used to always say to me that everything that was happening. And, you know, I, you know, just even in my lifetime in Alabama, I've seen, you know, clan rallies and cross burnings and things like that. but, the things that you had to see and endure and made sense out of, but she always would say, it's because they are afraid. They are afraid. Like, are afraid you kidding?
1: Of what yeah. I,
0: of Of the, I mean, you know, kind of it's been passed down. If you think about it this way, we have seen people who have been, have gone to, schools with textbooks that were 20 years old. You know, I I was recently visiting a school in rural Alabama uh, last year. uh, Well, actually, it's been more than last year, but it was before COVID. Um, I think it was in the fall of 2019. Um, I went to a rural school in in Alabama, and I saw the kids were – their 11th grade American history textbook was one – Um, That had George W. Bush Had just been elected president And they were using this last year That was their American history textbooks And so what I was going to say is They have seen people who have gone to schools With inferior equipment With outdated textbooks Go on to be the CEOs of companies uh, go on to be in, you know, some of the the finest schools. I mean, let's take James Baldwin himself. That at Oxford University, one of the most re- highly regarded institutions of higher learning in the world, James Baldwin, someone who graduated from a high school in New York City, Harlem. Went to debate with that was his that was his kind of um, world credential, uh, not to mention his kind of his world experience. But he went there to debate a gentleman who had graduated from Yale and been exposed to travel all over the world, and James Baldwin thrashed him. And so think about it if. It, they fear and there are a lot of people that fear that ability, that natural ability. Give give a black man or a black woman an opportunity. Look what happens. Look what they can do with a little of nothing. You you think about But they failed Go ahead.
1: They fail to consider they fail to consider where they can evolve had they allowed black people into public spaces? Have they allowed, we could, they they failed to consider our collective humanity of, of growing with each other, learning from each other and bettering each other. It's not, we're not, we don't have to be so divisive and segregated. Um, it's. I don't think there's really anything to fear, uh, well, except for maybe a little well, bit of I, loss I'm, of power. But you gain sure, knowledge. sure.
0: But you know that's your that's your perspective. But I think he also wraps it up well towards the end of the the letter to his 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 nephew, where he says, "In this case, the danger." in the minds of most white Americans is the loss of their identity. And that's what we found with the recent insurgents um, uh, on the Capitol was that there is a fear also of the loss of that identity, which is superiority. That's a part of the identity.
1: But if your identity is rooted in somebody else's oppression. It's not an identity.
0: It's it's, it's flawed. It's, it's, I, I think that's what you yeah. struggle with too. It's flawed. Doesn't make any sense, but it's what is. So, well, folks, we we are at the end of our hour. Um, Aaron, I really appreciate you coming on and having this conversation. Just as I predicted, um, we are at the end of the hour, and we only got through. Uh, what is, I think, about um, seven or eight pages. (laughs) So we could go on and on for a long time, and we didn't even get to the end of that. So I'm going to say, I don't know when we'll look at our schedules and we'll figure out, let's come back and investigate down at the cross um, and talk about that a little bit, because I think there are some other really kind of deep reflections that um, um, Mr. Baldwin um, communicated um, So I Just want to remind you all that are listening That um, about Tomorrow and tonight um, The title of the show is Time Capsule Circa 1960 Anything Changed um, With um, William Spivey is uh, My special guest um, So please be sure And listen in and then Wednesday, we're going to talk about um, why the conversation black men have with their boys is necessary. And to end the week on Thursday, black mothers, uh, black daughters and uh, American society. So, again, thank you for being on. And uh, for those of you um, who listen in on a regular basis, thank you. Thank you for your first time listeners until tomorrow night. Go well. Stay well.